Welcome to episode 96 of The Professor and the Hacker. I'm always, always staggered when we get up to these numbers when I say them that uh, someone out there, God bless you for listening to us. PVO is The Professor uh, and joins me now and I'm The Hack, Hugh Remington. How are you, Peter? G'day, Hugh. I mean, look, just because we've done this 96 times doesn't mean anyone's listening, does it? No, there's a vast howling <laughs> void out there <laughs> and we're happy to play in it. I'm enjoying our conversations, even if nobody else is. Well, let me let me just you, say that. Good for you. <laughs> well, look, there have been a whole bunch of conversations going to take place today, National Cabinet, as we are mm. recording this. And they're going to be approving or maybe not approving uh, this new sort of lifeline that the federal government has handed out to people pushed back into lockdown again. Uh, this is the up to $500 a week. Uh, for people, lots of conditions and strings attached, and uh, the Prime Minister announced it before it got approved by National Cabinet. What are we to make of it, Peter? Yeah, look, it's, it's along the lines of the disaster relief payments, uh, and it's to apply you know, to anyone that faces a, a sort of a seven-day lockdown, as you say, uh, not to anyone, I should clarify, because you, as you point, there are all sorts of T's and C's uh, in it. The thing I found most interesting initially with it being announced, uh, apart from the fact that it was a sort of a 50-share arrangement with the states, was that it, it's, it's for seven-day lockdowns forthwith. It didn't include the first seven-day lockdown for Victoria, which means that regional Victoria misses out on it. So they're, they're, they're throwing it forward, not back in that sense. Now, keep in mind, most of regional Victoria is pretty blue. So it's Liberals denying Liberals and Nationals, I guess, uh, payments that they otherwise might have been able to access uh, you know, post that, that first seven-day lockdown. Uh, for regional Victoria. So uh, that, that sort of stuck out to me. Um, but the main thing politically in the payments, you know, there's lots of terms and conditions. There's lots of areas that Labor can be critical about how it doesn't apply. But the one thing that it does do, which there was some speculation it might not, it goes to individuals. It doesn't go to businesses to then redistribute to individuals in some form, uh, which is what we saw with JobKeeper. And I think that is a political calculation because there had been some speculation that whatever might be coming in the days before it was finally announced, there was some speculation that they would run it through businesses. And I wonder whether they were considering that and the speculation alone was enough for them to realise how bad politically that was versus directly putting the money to people uh, so that they felt that they were directly, if you like, getting some support from the government rather than running it through the businesses. So the benefit of that from the government is that people go, oh, thank you, government, you have helped me most directly. And the other advantage is, is that it avoids uh, the situation where everyone runs off very quickly to remind the world that uh, JobKeeper, among other things, went to people like uh, Jerry Harvey at uh, Harvey yep. Norman, who was having the best year of his life and giving himself bonuses and the share price going through the roof and all the rest of it while he trousers uh, job keeper benefits. So um, yeah, maybe they've learned some lessons along the way there. But the other, I guess, the key thing is, is that among the T's and C's, as you call them, is that it only goes to hotspots as defined by the Commonwealth Medical Officer, the Chief Medical Officer of the Commonwealth, which means that the money is not going to go, let's say it happens again in Victoria, won't go at all unless uh, Professor Kelly agrees that it is a hotspot. And that gives some degree of control or at least influence over lockdowns in the future because it puts pressure, presumably, let's say it's on the state government of Victoria, uh, the recognition that if they go into a lockdown and uh, the Commonwealth Health 
authorities say, look, it hasn't met the, the, the hotspot definition that they have, which is 30 cases over three days. Uh, so therefore, the lockdown won't be supported or the people stuck in the lockdown won't be supported by Commonwealth money. That itself gives a bit more leverage, doesn't it? To, um, to Yeah, I, I don't actually mind that um, provision of it. I mean, we all don't mind that provision of it potentially until we do mind <laughs> uh, if we think that they're you know, being unreasonable in holding back on what they classify as a, as a hotspot via the medical advice federally, but it's still via the medical advice federally. Uh, so it's not as though it's politicians only at the federal level who are making the call. It's it's independent medical experts, albeit, uh, you know, medical experts that work for the Commonwealth. Um, but I'm okay about that, uh, at least as a principle. It's a little bit like tied grants to some extent, you know, in, in the old sort of COAG arrangements of, of transferring money from the feds to, uh, to the state government. So, I, and I understand the, the logic in why they're doing it, because they obviously are less bullish about lockdowns and hotspots than they believe the Victorian state government in particular is. So they want to maintain a certain level of control. I mean, it's not analogous to this, but, you know, if I'm willy nilly handing money out to my daughters uh, to go to the movies sporadically, I like to think that I would at least have the right to ask what movie it is that they're seeing. And if it's not rated appropriately or indeed I just don't think it's appropriate, then they don't get the funds. Uh, I guess it's a it's an adult version of that to some extent, and they have to tidy their rooms before they go. Um, <laughs> That's right. And int- intriguingly enough, uh, just uh, you know, this help the five hundred up to five hundred dollars. Uh, Dan Tian tying himself in knots on insiders last week. You were part of the panel there. I just thought it was the sort of performance from Dan Tian that makes people loathe politicians, loathe them in their blood and in their water, because there he was trying to tell David Spears that there was Commonwealth funding already for people who were tied up in lockdown. They could go down to Centrelink and if they were eligible, then they'd get some money. And that was absolutely false as a statement. David Spears uh, stuck at him like a dog with a bone and didn't get a final concession, but made it quite clear that the money which 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 existed before this latest announcement um, is only for those who either have COVID, can't go to work because they have COVID, or they're a close contact of people with COVID. It came in, came in last year. So, you know, but Dan Tian, had he got away with that, would have been trying to tell people that, in fact, there was money available through Centrelink. And people who would have believed the minister, and why shouldn't you believe a minister when he tells you something on a program like Insiders, would have spent the day on the Centrelink website trying to find out how it was that they might be able to get some money to tide them over while they're in lockdown. And the money would not have been there because it never was. Mm. It was a lie and a piece of disgraceful flummery by Tian. And uh, that particular grab of that interview deserves to live a long life. Anyway. Oh, I, I, and let me just say, I, I agree with that. And I, I, I mean, at the time, I think I said that there was political blood on the floor to David on air, you know, in the aftermath of, of that interview, because Dan Tian clearly was running talking points without actually considering how the talking points apply to the reality of what people are facing, because we, we both know the way these things work. Talking points get sent out to MPs and there would be something like what to say if you get asked about federal assistance uh, for Victorians and it would have had a list of ways that the federal government provides assistance and one of those or a number of those are the ones that Dan Tien was referring to. But unfortunately for him, that wasn't related to what David was even asking about in the context of where people were in the lockdown and so he was giving both false hope 
uh, and wasting people's time if they were to head off to Centrelink, not to mention wasting Centrelink's time. I think Patricia Cabalas made that point uh, on the panel as well. So a bad look from Dan T and uh, politicians get themselves in that mess, but he got right in the middle of it as a senior cabinet minister who was under the pump in a major interview uh, on the ABC. Uh, and, you know, Dan T is actually one of the good guys to some extent, I would argue, in Cabinet, not one of the bad guys. You know, what I liked about his past performances around these silly leadership showdowns, whether it's against Abbott or against Turnbull, he always took the view that I'm not going to be party to that because I think that that's the the politics of politicking. But unfortunately, when it came to the talking points, he was right into the politicking and just reciting them rather than thinking about mm. them. Um, and then we have the vaccinations, of course. We've seen these scenes in uh, Queensland and Brisbane in particular of people just lining up for hours, up to 12 hours, just deciding they'd take it into their own hands. Uh, they wanted to get vaccinated. They're lining up um, regardless of, <clears throat> excuse me, regardless of whether they're eligible or not. Uh, this sense of impatience in some areas of people just saying that, for heaven's sake, get me bloody the, vac- the vaccine. Um, but then also we, we spoke to a number of people there in the queues in in Brisbane and a lot of them s- saying that they were over 50, but were only there for the Pfizer. They didn't want the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, you're seeing a lot of this turning up that there's hesitancy, particularly around AstraZeneca because of more blood clots have been announced in the last 24 hours, even though it's a, a tiny number relative to the total number getting vaccinated. Now, how would you assess the vaccine rollout as a piece of public policy and delivery. Um, look, uh, uh, terrible is the short answer. So there's there's no, you know, for, for, for listeners know that I am not in any way trying to gild the lily in what I'm saying. Uh, I'm just simply providing some context. They get better as they roll out around the world. So lots of them have had a very spluttery start before they've really got moving. And I think that's already started to some extent here. Very spluttery start. It's started to get moving. Now, the, the, the criticism is therefore not so much about the spluttery start. Um, you know, it's more about the fact that the start, albeit spluttery, came so much later than it needed to because of some bad vaccine deals as well as some bad luck along the way. But here's my broader point, and this is the problem. Um, you know, they've botched sections of the vaccine rollout, no question. Um, some of the responses in relation to aged care and aged care workers just boggle the mind. But my fear is actually even more depressing than just a government stuff up in, uh, in aspects of the rollout along the way. I'm now looking at this, Hugh, and I'm thinking, okay, if the numbers are right, and even if the government has enough of the vaccine available so that it can be rolled out to everyone who wants it in a relatively timely manner, the data seems to indicate that as many as 30% of Australians won't get the vaccine, possibly even more. Now, you might be able to, on the edges, tinker with that a little bit and awareness campaigns can help and all the rest of it. But ultimately, if three out of every 10 voting Australians don't get the vaccine, that's a powerful lobby group who can shift against a government. Does the government have the guts to just crack us open once everyone has had a chance to get vaccinated? Because those of us who have, know that if we get COVID, and we probably will at some point, if we get COVID, we know that we don't get seriously ill and we know that we don't die. So that's great. But there are enormous risks to the other three out of 10. And of those people who don't get it, there's the anti-vaxxers who I have little sympathy for. There's the busy or the disorganized who I have some sympathy for, but not a lot. But then there's also the vulnerable. People, because of other pre-existing conditions, will always be vulnerable who might not be able to get 
AstraZeneca or Pfizer, or even if they do get it, their risk profile is greater than the rest of us uh, for various reasons. The homeless who can't access it at all, potentially. There's all these questions, right? And is any government going to be courageous? Maybe that's the word, so Humphrey style. Courageous enough to say, you know what? We are hitting a point where we've now got the rollout right. We've got enough of it that everyone can get it. Here is our due date on when we open up. Good luck, Australia. If you haven't got vaccinated, you should. Because the alternative to that is that we just permanently stay closed. But if we do open up, Hugh, are we going to tolerate hundreds, possibly thousands of new COVID cases every day when a sizable chunk of those people will get very sick or die because they have chosen not to get the vaccination? It's a, it's a horrible thought. But by the same token, can you not go down that path? Can you realistically for years refuse to open up because of all of those attendant risks and then ultimately suffer the consequences of that? Yeah, look, it's a fascinating and very real issue because, as you say, at some stage we need to open up. But at the same time, you cannot imagine, particularly those people in that category that you describe who may have some underlying issue, uh, being held down and jabbed against their will, that's not going to happen. So no government is going to do that, regardless of, of where the, the politics and the votes lie, because you know the optics of it are appalling, and in fact the human rights of it are appalling. Um, you know, ultimately it has to be a choice for those people to take those risks, but uh, it does, as you say, raise the risk. When we open up a little bit, then perhaps the death toll is going to return to us, and we're going to have to try to figure that out. Although I think if you know some of those who are simply lazy and disorganised when they start seeing people dying who are not vaccinated, while those who are vaccinated are not dying, um, it, it may be the little impetus to get them across the line. Um, there's one interesting little thing. We'll leave this alone on this, I think, but I noticed in the Financial Review today, hardly a left-wing paper, an editorial which cracked at Scott Morrison. I'll quote this. The Prime Minister is frequently reluctant to own anything, to hold the hose, unless there is a political advantage. It nails something there. And there was really shown to high advantage in a, um, uh, in a little clip which Anthony Albanese has been tweeting out from Question Time yesterday, Richard Miles putting a question to the Prime Minister. Does the Prime Minister take responsibility for the failure of the $70 million COVID safe app? The camera then picks up Scott Morrison nodding towards Stuart Robert, who gets up to answer the question. For a piece of political theatre, <laughs> take responsibility. I'm not even answering the question about whether I'll take responsibility. I've got a flunky to do that for me. Uh, it was just, well, you know what? It was far from Churchillian. If there was a single thing out of Wayne Errington and my book on Scott Morrison, that single theme was that he's somebody who doesn't take responsibility. I mean, there was lots of other elements to it: stubbornness and and you know, and there was positives as well about his political ability to manoeuvre. But the sing if, if somebody asks me what was the single thing, you know, a close second was stubbornness, but first was undoubtedly his unwillingness to take responsibility. Yeah. Well, we've got Christian Porter in the ABC. We've got the economy growing. Let's have a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back. This is episode 96 of The Professor and the Hack. And now, PVO, we're in a remarkable situation when you, when you consider it, that the economy is now larger than it was before the pandemic. And given the scale of the damage globally from COVID-19, that is an 
astonishing result, isn't it? Oh, look, it is. And I guess it's, it's a genuine indication that there was a snapback. Now, it was a snapback that was built on various things, uh, huge uh, advantages in the terms of trade around iron ore and gas prices, particularly iron ore, um, huge amounts of government spending, uh, no doubt about that, propping up the economy substantially so to, if you like, fill the void of private sector areas of concern, but the private sector bounced back faster than anyone could have expected. Surging house prices was absolutely another component to it. But the one which is the cautionary tale, Hugh, which was part of it, and it was a big part of it, if not the biggest part of it, it was consumer spending. Record consumer spending and a record bump in consumer spending for those first three months of 2021, because that's the quarter that we're talking about where it had a 1.8% jump, making the economy, as you say, bigger than it was pre-pandemic. Now, that consumer spending in the first three months of 2021 was built on a belief in the population that we'd put or were about to put the pandemic behind us, that we'd survived it, that lockdowns were essentially a thing of the past, that problems with COVID were a thing of the past, that the vaccine rollout was both imminent and likely to be finished sooner than we now know it will be, and, like we just talked about a moment ago, that the consequences of a fully vaccinated Australia were better than we now know the consequences of a close to or even partially close to vaccinated Australia is likely to end up being. So my point about that is that it's an amazing quarter of growth. We've bounced back, we're bigger. We'll continue to grow rather than shrink. We're not going to go back into recession, but it will be interesting to see what happens in the following quarters of this year uh, as to whether it stays as robust as that. I think it's far less likely to, not just because of the Victorian lockdown, but because of that loss of consumer confidence now that we realise and it's dawning on us that COVID is actually with us for a lot longer in a more debilitating way than we perhaps expected as consumers in those first three months. And the last very quick point, Hugh, is to make is this. Even if I'm wrong, and if the economy continues to surge along at the sort of rate that it did in the first quarter of this year, um, that's not a bad thing, but it does bring with it things like interest rate and inflationary pressure that will eventually build. And But what happens then is interesting because that means that ongoing big government spending isn't just about debt but it's also feeding that frenzy of a potential interest rate uh, spike or a, an inflation spike. And all the consequences of that where it could burst a, a housing bubble and so forth is, is, is its own risk, I suppose. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because watching it over a long time, I've kind of, you know, journalists tend to be somewhat pessimistic. We're looking for, uh, we're looking for the, the things that can go wrong. Uh, Nate Silver, the uh, American mm. data analyst, has a thing called bad weather bias. And this is where um, weather forecasters, there's been a huge amount of research done on people who then who get weather data and then broadcast it on air, on TV networks, on radio networks. And they will tend to talk up the prospect of rain rather more than the underlying data indicates it's going to rain. And there's a reason for that. And that is that the weatherman gets up and if he says, look, there's a pretty good chance of rain tomorrow and it's a sunny day, everyone's pretty happy. Uh, but if he gets up and says, look, it's going to be a clear day tomorrow, not much chance of rain, which might be a different way of interpreting exactly the same data. And it rains on someone. Then the listener goes, that weatherman's bloody hopeless. I went out today and I got soused in the rainstorm. God, I hate him. 
And so you bias towards talking about the thing that can go wrong <laughs> because then you're let off. You know, you don't seem naive when things go bad. And, and in a sense, journalists have that completely about what we do because we look at, at the Australian economy and we tend to think, well, all these things can kind of go wrong. And yet if you look back, broadly speaking, optimists have had a better run of it. And part of it, Hugh, I mean, on exactly what you're saying, part of it as well is, you know, um, you, you rarely see a, a newspaper headline that says all is well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And nor do you race off to buy it, perhaps. That's another element <laughs> exactly. of it as well, which can, <laughs> can go into it. Because, because it strikes me that the, taking what you say, there are two things that are built into these excellent GDP figures showing that we are growing and we're back as the size of an economy bigger than we were before the pandemic. And you've pointed to them. One is the fact that we've just borrowed a shitload of money to get it happening. The government's borrowed money and it's sluiced out a lot of money. So of course the economy is underpinned by borrowed money. Uh, everyone in the household circumstances can borrow lots of money and buy new cars and set of skis and whatever the hell it might be and think, gee, look at all this magnificent stuff I've got, but it's borrowed money folks. And then the other element to it is, as you say, that the uh, the consumer spending is bound up in something similar. It comes from the same place by and large. And, and also the fact that during lockdown and during those difficult times last year, people were going, you know what, if I'm going to sit around the house, I don't want to sit with that bloody couch. It has to go. And, and I have to set up an office at home. So I'm going to need a desk. I can't keep doing it on the dining room table. And I might have to, you know, this sort of stuff. So there was very hard to get people to come around and, and do that sort of handyman work and building within a house and all that stuff. Um, I know I've been trying. So, you know, maybe we're in still a bit of a weird fool's paradise, um, but that, may, that might just be the, the you know, the sour-faced weatherman in me. <laughs> I, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I think we tend to be more negative on these things. And I guess that's where the 1.8% the, the GDP figure at the end of the day in a binary sense, it, there is a lot more good in it than bad in it. But there are just cautionary notes to take note of along the way, I guess. Can I just, this is just a little interesting quirk because I, 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 do, I do it all the time. Uh, I, I draw parallels between, you know, households and debt and um, government debt. And I remember uh, an economist uh, by the name of Andrew Charlton, who was the senior economist to Kevin Rudd, uh, as, a, as a young man during Rudd's tenure, and he's now off, got some whiz-bang consultancy of his now, but he did a PhD, I think, at Oxford in, in economics and he's written books and, and so forth. Uh, I knew him in uni days before we, we both ended up in our various careers. But I remember he once made a, a really interesting point to me that's really stuck with me. And he made this point to me before I ever did my commerce study and economics study. He said, journalists need to stop, and we all do, so, you know, caveat there you go generally he goes journalists need to stop drawing the parallels between individuals and governments because governments are eternally living whereas individuals are saving or need to save towards a loss of income and a retirement one day he sort of said imagine if you were eternally living and therefore eternally working um, i mean dread the thought but if you were then obviously your debt to income issues or whatever they might be would be much less scary wouldn't they because you know we're all trying to get rid of whatever debt we have if we can by certain points of retirement you know for that inevitable d-day where we don't earn as much or we earn nothing uh he it was an interesting point it just made me think differently about government debt because this was during the heady days of when of course there was this crazy argument being run that debt is always bad 
and he was trying to make the point that governments are eternally living. They can always manage debt. Uh, but the issue is, you know, when interest rates are low or not, sometimes you should always try to have more debt as a government that is eternally living. Uh, and also, you know, it's about where the debt money goes, obviously, to be spent on things that further down the track can be more productive. I don't know why I thought of that, but I, I always have that in the back of my mind uh, as a reminder not to fall for the spin of conservative politicking, that debt is always bad. Not that we hear them say that a lot these days. They're not saying that too much anymore. Yeah, and I know what put it in your mind <laughs> is that I, I fell into the lazy trap of uh, making the... Well, no, I wasn't having to go at you, though. No, 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 I, no, I, I quite I, agree. I think... But you're right. You're right, of course. It, and and people understand their, their household finances, their personal finances in a way that, that we don't, in a general sense, understand, um, you know, a, a nation's finances uh, and the capacity to, to access money as well. But it's such a funny thing because we all do that. Like, as you were saying it, I was thinking, yeah, that's great. You know, like you, you see that around you with people, you know, spending up big and often it, you hear stories of people where it is actually built on debt. And that's the difference between people who uh, buy. And that's, I think, yeah, the household examples there do work in, in this sense in particular you know if you're buying skis or a boat or you know sort of a, an expensive car that's very different to buying an investment property or or borrowed money for share portfolio value there is still the differences to government between eternally living and you know people who are not but those that is analogous to the difference between what you what we increasingly are told is good debt versus bad debt bad debt being recurrent expenditure you know, uh, good debt being productive purchases of government, whatever that might be, you know, is that Snowy Hydro or is that some other scheme like that that can be productive potentially? Uh, and that's what the equivalent for an individual is, isn't it? If they're buying investment properties, as long as they're not in the wrong part of the cycle or if they don't have a need to sell basis anytime soon. True enough. Um, back to the fraught subject of Christian Porter. Um, he has settled his defamation matter with the ABC uh, it would seem to me, despite the way in which he spins it, that uh, and on the legal lawyers that I've I've seen on this subject, that essentially he sued the ABC and uh, he ended the suit. Uh, so um, there are no winners here. The whole argument over guilt or innocent about historical events that may or may not have happened will remain forever in the sphere of the unknowable and therefore you know his his innocence under law remains um, a fact um it it's it's been a painful exercise but it strikes me as if the ending of the defamation case has been good for the abc it's been good for public funds because you know we the taxpayer were paying for their defense of that um uh, so it's glad it's good that it's resolved, but I can't help feeling that it's probably the best result that uh, Christian Porter could have got. It doesn't keep on getting chewed through the uh, ABC defense, which we will probably now never know, uh, won't get aired. Um, and he gets that statement of regret from the ABC that uh, some people uh, might have taken the misguided view that there was some suggestion that he was guilty of something. Um and that's about where it stands. What's happened to his career, do you think, coming off the back of this? Oh, well, I think I think his political career, if it isn't over, which I suspect it probably is, uh, at the very least, it's certainly hit a high watermark and it's all downhill skiing from here. It's just a matter of whether it's a plunge down uh, or a slow ebb down. And that sort of depends on things like whether he wins his seat, whether he retains uh, a cabinet position. But I don't think he'll ever go back 
even if he wanted to, to the lofty heights that he was at. Uh, it, it's all lower category portfolios from here at best. Uh, and at worst, he uh, goes out in ignominy trying to fight at the next election and loses his seat um, in no small part because of this whole saga. It's interesting, though. The only thing I would say about this settlement, I mean, I, I, I'm no lawyer, but I got the impression that, that he probably had a pretty good case uh, if it had gone all the way to trial. I think one of the issues was likely to be that the ABC has unlimited funds as a taxpayer funded organization that doesn't also face the pressures that commercial media does from insurers because i think the abc self-insures so you know if it was channel 10 or anyone else even with very deep pockets if it was a very big media organization they still face that pressure from insurers to try to settle and to uh, you know basically pay damages to avoid bigger damages further down the track that was i think a factor because he of course as an individual was going to have to pay millions of dollars to be able to contest it and then who knows whether if he loses he's completely ruined if he wins you only ever get part of that cost back on top of your damages anyway in a cost order so there was all of that i don't i agree with you that i don't think there's any real winners in it i i'm more skeptical about um what like don't get me wrong i think the abc won the spin instantly you know they jumped out very hard and fast with official statements as well as journalists tweeting and then there was a bandwagon effect amongst people who probably do still think christian porter is guilty uh on social media and all the rest of it but uh, on the actual and so i think he lost that let me be very clear you know in the politics of spin which is in a sense what this is i think he visually and optically came across as the loser but in terms of what he actually got apart from just the opportunity costs where he got out of what was potentially expensive proceedings that he may or may not have won and had the debilitating consequences of for however long to come, what he got was he got a six-figure payout. It wasn't damages, but it was towards legal costs. And it wasn't just mediation costs because I think they were 10000 and and the six-figure payment would have gone further towards other legal costs, which wouldn't have been insignificant already for him. But on top of that, the statement of regret which was a regret that by the ABC that some people took this as suggesting uh, that he may be guilty of these allegations. That was something. But then also they did acknowledge that there was no evidence um, to be able to support the notion of guilt even to the civil standard, neither criminally nor civilly. Now, I know they quickly then also said, we stand by our journalism. I just don't understand what you're standing by if you acknowledge that you regret that people misunderstood the article and you acknowledge that these allegations can't even be substantiated to the balance of probabilities. Indeed, a lot of dissatisfaction all the way around, including among uh, friends of the uh, of the woman involved. And on that sorry note, uh, we'll talk to you next week, Peter. Good to chat you. Talk then, mate. All the best. Take care, mate. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.